You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Richard Kent, a former Army captain who's here to talk about his deployment to Afghanistan. Richie, welcome to The Spear. Well, thanks for having me. Can you give us a little bit about your background, how you wound up in the Army? Sure. Uh, actually, so I grew up in Kansas and enlisted in 03, um, so it's kind of part of the 9-11 generation, I guess, happened my senior year. Uh, went to the 82nd and served as a private and specialist a rifleman. Missed my deployment to Iraq because I got accepted to prep school. So went to the prep school when I was in Jersey, came up to West Point, uh, went back into the infantry, um, completed ranger school, airborne, air assault, uh, and then went to 117, which is in the 2nd Brigade Combat Team at Fort Lewis, which is a striker unit. And from there, deployed in 2012. Having come from light airborne infantry, was the striker uh, a different beast entirely? Uh, it wasn't too different. I think getting used to having motor pool days and having to do maintenance and how important that was was a little bit different since we, I mean, when I was in the 82nd, we literally had two Humvees and it was for the first sergeant, the commander, and everybody else walked everywhere or you sat in a truck. So that was different. But I think the the general aspect of the infantry platoon was the same. I will say that I don't know if it was the, the difference between the 82nd and all they are and the second ID or if it was the fact that, you know, I was separated by six or seven years probably. Um, but the culture was vastly different uh, between the units, which was. When you were at Lewis, how long were you there before your deployment? So I showed up in, I want to say February of 2011, and we deployed just about a year later. So I got there, showed up to my, the S3 shop. There were two lieutenants there, but I was the only one with a tab, and I was the first tab lieutenant in about six months. And so when the XO saw me, he goes, you get the next platoon. And I skipped the line and took a platoon about two weeks later. Did that cause bad blood with the other lieutenants? It didn't. I, we, they, were, they were all nice guys. They were, they were good. It was just, you know, they kind of understood how it worked, and for one reason or another, you know, they hadn't gotten their tab. And our XO and S3 were light infantry guys, so they kind of came with a bit more. They, they appreciated the tab more than some other folks did, even though our BC was an armor off. What was getting your platoon like, having been you know, a private and a specialist in a platoon previously? Uh, it was, I was really excited. I was nervous, but I mean, having been prior enlisted, 
you know, I had my tab, I had my airborne wings, my aerosol, my EIV. So I showed up and I didn't look like just a regular butter bar and people knew that. And I kind of understood what the environment was going to be like. And so I also set a great example. I took over my platoon and like the next day or within the first week were EIB. It was EIB lanes. And so I was like, hey, I'll, I'll do this with you even though I have it. And threw on my ruck and then ran the 12 miles and came first in the company. And so immediately everyone's like, okay, this... You know, the PL's, not, he's not messing around. And so I earned a lot of respect off the bat because I just stepped in and completed the EIB lanes with everybody and did fairly well. What was your relationship with your platoon sergeant? Initially, uh, it was, he was a good guy up front. I thought he was, you know, physically fit. He seemed pretty motivated. We had issues a bit later as I got to know the platoon more and more. Um, but I think that I also was able to step in and earn some with the small unit leaders because I kind of immediately walked in and called people out on things like holes in a beret. I, I started stepping up to people and they were not used to a platoon leader taking such interest in menial kind of NCO business, quote unquote. And so once I did that, I kind of got NCOs more in line to, to picking up their like what's traditionally in their lane that I think has fallen because their last PL was on the way out. Like I said, over time as we started to work on our relationship, we, we identified gaps. What sort of workup did you have? Uh, well, initially, we, as I got to the unit, they, had, they were getting ready to start the entire training process to go to, uh, to go to Afghanistan. So, you know, you reset and your training process typically starts with individual skills training, team skills training, squad, platoon, et cetera, et cetera. So we had just kicked that off and I was getting to see the, uh, the entire training process. What I started to realize, though, as I spent more time with the unit and did sensing sessions and sat down with just the team leaders, just the squad leaders, just the privates, is that there was a pretty big morale problem. People were a little demoralized, I think I would say. The last deployment they were on, they took several casualties. They had a couple strikers that were hit where most of the people in the strikers were killed. When they came back, my unit, 2nd Brigade, was originally 5th Brigade, 2nd ID, which is famous for the kill teams. And so they completely reflagged it. Like most of the leadership left, they renamed it, went from fifth to second to try to wipe that entire experience away. But a lot of the enlisted soldiers were still there. And so there was just a massive kind of psychological overhang from that that we were trying to work on. What were some of the things you attempted that you found successful? Uh, well, one of the first problems I wanted to do was try to just like motivate people to realize that, you know, this is not who you're going to be forever. Right, so a lot of people felt demoralized by it. They felt like they were kind of the, was it like at the wrong end of the army, uh, and that this wasn't a good unit, and it would never be a good unit. And so everyone just kind of wanted to leave or just kind of get through things. So we had several discipline problems. We had some drug problems. We had some AWOL problems. Um, and so part of what I wanted to do was just kind of reset all the expectations and say, hey, we're starting over. Like new unit, new leadership, new you, like new deployment, new AO, everything's different. So like, let's just get things started on a, on a good note. So started just by being positive with them and not kind of just putting them down. And every time they're failing at something, not harping on the failure, but harping on like the lesson learned and how we can improve on it going forward. Um, so just really trying to be a more positive role model than I think they'd had up to that point. Where were you slated to go? So we initially were slated to go to Spinboldak, which is a town that's right on the Pakistan border, kind of heads towards the uh, towards Peshawar and the Kedah. What was your mission there going to be? 
So our mission there was to secure an AO that was north of Spinboldak, where we'd be operating out of a cop. There were a handful of villages there, and there's also a mountain range that separates uh, Afghanistan from Pakistan. We already controlled the main road in, so the kind of working assumption was that most IED materials were being brought in through the passes, uh, so in a rural area through these villages. And so the villages would know what was coming in, where they're coming in from. So if we were able to secure the work with the villages in a counterinsurgency fashion and then do some more specific missions on the passes, we could interrupt the flow of materials. So when did you deploy? We deployed in, I want to say late March of 2012. Uh, we went to CAF, uh, did some training, got our driver's licenses and, and all the ridiculous things you have to do when you get there, and then went on up to Simple uh, Deck. What were the first few days like as a PL in, in Spinball Deck? Uh, I think there were, there were a lot of it was, you know, I say like more like army bureaucracy, like understanding, like getting the briefs from the S2, understanding the procedures, trying to figure out like how you're going to send in your con ops. Um, some of the, the things that I don't think people worried about at the beginning part of the war. Uh, and then when we went out to the cop, the first days we're doing RIP with the, the previous unit, tagging along with them and going to visit all the key leaders in the area uh, and kind of getting a handoff and getting all their maps kind of the, the, the materials they had built out that gave us situational awareness of the area. How effective was that handover process? Uh, I think it was as effective as it could be, but there's only so much you can just be told. Is, uh, you know, they'll be like, oh, this, this is a good person, and we've had this great relationship, and these are the routes we've taken. But, you know, the enemy knows that you're ripping out. It's, it's obvious that you're doing this. It's not really a secret. And frankly, they're ready to go. So they're, they're kind of giving you the bare minimum, like, hey, let's do this. Here's your stuff. And then as soon as they can, they're kind of ready to, they think, okay, you're a big boy. You can figure this out. We're going to head on out. So once you ripped Telwood and you had the area, how long were you there? What'd you do? So we were there about two and a half months before we moved. Uh, but initially we were just going out to the different villages and trying to get a sense of, of what needed to be done and what hadn't been done. I did have a, the, uh, the uh, auspiciousness of, of hitting an IED on my first patrol. Uh, my first, my lead vehicle hit an IED and disabled it, which it, no one was injured, uh, but it was still one of those things where the previous unit, you know, they told us they hadn't hit an IED in months. And so we were, that immediately put everybody on edge a bit. Like, okay, like if things changed or are we doing something wrong, et cetera. But we initially started working on some of the projects that were still in continuation as far as like water projects, uh, trying to figure out building relationships with the AVP and going to check different areas. Uh, and then we were also following up on some, I guess low, I would call them low value targets really. They weren't important enough for anybody else, but if Intel picked something up, they would pass it down to us if there's NRAO and we would execute it. Talk to us a little bit about the Afghan border police, the AVP. Uh, so the AVP, um, you know, I don't think, we worked with the ANA later and they weren't as professional as the ANA, but they were relatively good. I mean, they, they had their own small base, um, but you know, obviously there's cultural differences there. You know, when we, we showed up there and had our first kind of shura, it was very formal. There wasn't a lot. It was trying to build a relationship. It was very difficult. Um, we had a very interesting experience with them, though, in a sense that, and one of our, for our first or second meeting, we walked out and they were giving us a tour of their little kind of cop. And we noticed that there was that little cage, sort of like a dog kennel, but like a human cage. And it was a little bit taller than a dog kennel, maybe three feet tall. And there was a person in it, which was incredibly odd uh, and caught the, caught the notice of some of our soldiers first who pointed it out to me. Uh, and so that kind of became a situation where 
we really had, we were discussing with him what was going on, and I was worried about, okay, am I going to be, a, you know, an accomplice to some kind of humanitarian problem or a, a war crime? Um, so we had to determine what was going on. Turns out this guy had just stolen something from his neighbor, and he was trying to enforce the law and make sure he never stole again, which was interesting. Um, so after talking with my platoon sergeant, who had a lot more experience, much more deployments, you know, we took the route of talking to him about it, saying we didn't appreciate it, we didn't approve of it, and it's going to be hard to work with you if we don't think that we can trust you to act in like an upstanding and moral way with American values, so to speak. And uh, he agreed to release the person uh, at the end of the day, since he should have learned his lesson by then. An interesting moral dilemma for a young lieutenant. <laughs> Yeah, for the first kind of first mission out, it was just something I didn't really expect to run into, um, but was just really just another day in the deployment. So you mentioned your platoon sergeant was the same one from your workup. So at the time, yes. Um, so I had well, let me rephrase that. So he was the, my second platoon sergeant. So my initial platoon sergeant that I took uh, when I took the platoon was a staff sergeant operating in an E7 role. He had done a great job as a, as a squad leader in the previous deployment. He was well-liked as a squad leader and had been put in this position. And we were short on, on E7s. So they were like, hey, he's a pretty good squad leader. He'll be a great platoon sergeant. That turned out not to be the case. Uh, what I kind of found out over time was that he just – he had trouble adapting from his kind of I am going to be kind of a hard ass as a squad leader to being a more like nurturing platoon sergeant and realizing that everybody needs something different and you can't just treat everyone like this. Like an example is for PT, he would go out and just run everybody to the ground and then he would criticize everybody. Like if anyone made any mistakes, he would chastise them in public in front of people. And there's like a very common saying, you know, you, you punish in private, you praise in public. And given the morale situation, I sat him down um, after we had known each other for at least a month or two. So I had a really good understanding of what was going on. And I said, hey, I think you're great at these things. I think there's a couple areas we can improve on. Yeah, I think what you did is great when you have like a really motivated unit who's fit and they're just trying to push them to the next level. But I don't think that's the right fit for where we're at. And I'd like to see you adjust a few things on these areas. And I gave him a handful of examples. He took it unenthusiastically is how I would describe it. Um, but he wasn't upset with it. I think he appreciated that I came to him and was being upfront with him. Uh, over time, that ended up not being the case. Um, another instance that kind of came out where his leadership was in question was he had, because he was still a staff sergeant, he was pulling staff duty. He was assigned to staff duty, and he basically assigned it to one of his squad leaders and took the day off and had him pull staff duty with no warning and no prep. And I didn't find out about this until I had walked into the battalion headquarters and realized this was going on. That was just one instance there were several others. And finally, I, I thankfully worked with my first sergeant throughout the whole process and told him what I was thinking because I knew I was going to need his buy-in in order to get anything done. But finally, when it came time for his NCUAR, I gave him a, a below average rating on his leadership qualities, uh, which was difficult to get approved. Uh, but because I talked to my new company commander and my first sergeant throughout the whole process, it did. And we were able to shift him into the NBC role. So he became the NBC NCO, which is kind of the Army's way of relieving somebody. So you got a new platoon sergeant. Yes. Yeah, so I had a great, great platoon sergeant. He came out of the 101st. His most recent job was teaching the NCO Academy at the, like the Warrior Leaders Course, I think it's called. And so he kind of came in and was like a very professional, very head on. And he was perfect compliment to me. Um, he wasn't tabbed, but he was, you know, which I think some people didn't like, but he was, I was a very like young lieutenant, like, let's get him. And he was like, sir, calm down. I've got this. You know, I would be like, we need to get this done. And he would just be like, all right, do you have anything better to do with your time? Because I can do that. 
and I would be like, oh, wow, this is what it's like to have like a really good platoon sergeant who takes care of things so I don't have to worry about them. Um, so we built a great relationship. He did a really good job motivating and developing the NCOs, which I think was partially because he came from the NCO Academy, so he was ideally suited for that role. Prepped our platoon very well. We deployed to Afghanistan. I had him for the first, uh, probably the first month, and then they decided to relieve a platoon leader and thought that my platoon sergeant was the ideal candidate to take a platoon, so I got a, another new platoon sergeant. You spend about two months in Spinboldak, mostly mounted? Mostly mounted. We had MATVs, which still, like, realize we trained with strikers. We went to JRTC, or went to, sorry, went to NTC with strikers, uh, showed up to Afghanistan. We're given MAT, MATVs or MATVs, and we trained with those, and then when we ended up moving, we lost those two, so another change. Big shifts. And where did you move to? After a couple of months, they decided that the 82nd, we were kind of a, our brigade, uh, 2-2, was attached or was kind of deployed with 482nd uh, under Colonel Menace. Uh, they were down, kind of, they were the main effort, I guess you would call it, down in, in um, near, near Kandahar. So they were having some more issues with AO. They had more enemy activity than we did. So they decided to detach my battalion and reattach it to 482 in the Zari Panjoy area. So we were about... 30 minutes drive along the Argandab River outside of Kandahar, and we were just north of the river um, in some of the more fertile areas. And they took your trucks from you? Yes. Yeah, so um, there was Fab Pasab was the big fob, but they had had everybody out into cops, and then further from cops, they broke us down to platoon patrol bases. And so because the roads were relatively narrow and they had, I mean, whether they were fields of marijuana or fields of other things, there were fields on all sides of them, and we couldn't drive through them. So you were essentially driving it. We were asking to get either one, the MATVs wouldn't fit on the roads, or two, it was obvious that there would be IED problems. So we just drove them to the platoon kind of patrol base, parked them inside a, a Constantino wire, and then walked everywhere we went. What was the AO like other than very fertile? Uh, so we had a handful of villages within it. And the people were relatively, they were nice folks. You know, it wasn't too bad of a, of a walk. I want to say we had probably a couple couple square miles. It wasn't more than that. Um, so walking was, was definitely doable. And our, our we were kind of voluntold that we had to do two, two patrols every day and one patrol at night as part of our presence patrols, um, which weren't difficult, really. It, it, initially, when we got there, it, it seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of action in our, in our section. Uh, a lot of what we were doing was just building relationships with the villagers and kind of letting them know that we were here to protect them and, and please let us know of any information that you have. So it was, we were kind of back to square one, like when we showed up to Spin Bulldog on just relationship building. Did you have Afghan partners there too? We did. Um, we had an ANA unit. We had, I think I want to say maybe it was an ANA platoon or ANA company that was at the company cop. And so they would get attached to us for for different missions. So we would usually have about a squad, four to eight, that would be attached to us. What was that interaction like? Uh, initially, it was pretty good. We had a really good interpreter when I got to this area who was very motivated. You know, some interpreters are just there to just translate. And this guy, I mean, he had like a stick with a hook, like a hook, uh, almost like a hook knife on it. And he would go out and clear IEDs. I mean, so, I mean, he had a great method. He would go out there and, and we thought we found an ID. He would scrape this thing out and he could find the command wire and he could go and he could rip the command wire in half and he would flip the IDs off the trail. And it was, we weren't doing that, obviously, but it was massively faster than waiting for bomb disposal to show up. So uh, he, and I was like, all right, man, this guy, this guy wants to win. He's out here to help us. Um, he was, he was ready to get his hands dirty anybody he could in order to help us out. So. 
Afghanistan's known for its fighting seasons, among other things, but did the weather change? With weather change, did the fighting season pick up? Well, so when we got there, it was spring in Spinboldak, and by the time we got to Zari Panjway, it was really the summer. Um, so it was, I, the whole time I was there, it was really just the summer, so I didn't see any seasonal change per se. Um, it, it was still a little very sporadic. There was there was kind of concern that where we were was going to become more hot over time, though, because um, it was the traditional home of, of some of the Taliban. So, Did it become more hot? It did in the sense that uh, I got injured uh, in an IED blast. Um, but I was the first. We, we had a couple of instances before that where people would start probing the p- patrol bases. Um, at night, we had a couple people pop in from tree lines and kind of spray the, the patrol base with uh, automatic weapon fire, and then they would kind of E&E through the, the, the low-lying kind of water trenches or the, uh, the tree lines so we couldn't track them even. And we weren't going to go out and follow them in, on foot at night. Um, but beyond that, we had had a handful of IED explosions. Another platoon had an ANA, a pretty bad one, uh, where they found a VBID, a vehicle IED, and... Um, the ANA were standing around it and messing with it, which they really shouldn't have been doing, and it went off and and killed, I want to say, three or four of them. You mentioned you got blown up. Yes. So I my uh, the most excitement I had was my was I guess my my injury. Um, so we had a situation pop up where, like I said, we had this AO, this couple square miles. Over the course of a couple months, we got to know everyone pretty well. If you're going out every single day talking to people, um, but what ended up happening was we kind of got this intel dump that said, "Hey, we've got some reports from I don't know where S2 shop somewhere else that there's potentially an IED cell uh, in a town called Barakazai that's just outside of your AO. It's kind of fit into this no man's land where no one's really going to it because it's outside of your AO and it's really at the edge of someone else's AO. So, you know, we need to check it out. So, would you go up there and?" go take a look, see what's going on. And I was like, okay. So kind of did my prep, looked at some of the, um, the data on the ID blast, although there had been some ID blast there. I was like, okay, so it's, it has been previously hot, but nothing, you know, in the past, recent past, probably because no one's been there potentially. We had a blimp, looked at blimp footage, kind of got a video of it from what I could gather uh, and started to put together a patrol. My company commander wanted us to do a longer patrol here in order to build a relationship with the village. So instead of just walking into the village and then walking back during the day, he wanted us to go in the evening and have like dinner, some kind, have them cook us food, and then we would finish the the patrol the next day, build some more relationships, and then come home. Which sounded, I guess, great in theory. The only problem was, you know, it was I want to say it was I don't know if it was Ramadan or was another holiday, but everyone was fasting in the day and they're eating at night. So we got off to a late start because he, he was off to a late start and had meetings. Uh, so we didn't actually get to the village till after sundown. So everyone was already in their houses. They were all eating. Uh, and we started out with the uh, – he convinced – he talked to a guy who seemed nice enough and told us we could sleep essentially in his animal pen, which, I mean, wasn't the most sanitary concept, but at least had walls and provided some protection for the evening, which was the goal. He then asked him to cook us dinner. And then he came back to me and said, yeah, I agree he's going to cook us dinner. And I was like, well – you know, we brought that 50-pound bag of rice as, like, kind of a gift to say thank you for cooking. Like, you gave that to him. He's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, what exactly did he say? And he goes, well, you said he's going to cook for us. And I immediately realized what was going to happen. Um, and what ended up did happening is this guy obviously doesn't have the food to feed 20-some soldiers, you know, in a regular Afghan. So he basically got his wife and, you know, the girls and his family together, and they cooked 50 pounds of rice in some mixture of goat and sheep fat. And then everybody 
because we didn't want to insult our guests, everyone was told you have two pounds of greasy rice to eat, and that is your dinner, um, which was quite hilarious at the time. Everyone was just kind of laughing uh, as we ate all this food in, in our little pig pen, um, which was, you know, it was, it was a fun kind of evening uh, before the next day. So, so now that you're, you've slept in the yes. pig pen, you've got a belly full of rice, you go out on patrol. Yeah, so we're walking. We start heading uh, through the village. Um, there's like a road and a, and a stream next to it. And one person came up to us and said, oh, you know, there's, there's Taliban up here. And we're like, okay, could you be more specific? Um, and there's like, well, you know, there's somebody up here. And we're like, all right, well, we're heading that way anyway. We had a, a target building we wanted to investigate. We're kind of walking. We're trying to stay on the main path where it looks like people have been walking. But it's kind of hard to follow it because it's not super distinct and it's crossing this stream. So we end up crossing a stream where we think the main path is and we're walking. And if I'm describing it, like I've got a miniature stream to my left, which is more like a miniature canal. And then on my right, a few feet to my right, there's a like a mud wall that's maybe waist high that borders a, a field. And then if you look to my right past over the fence, over the wall, you can see the blimp in the distance, which is where we came from. But we're walking, and I start to realize, okay, I'm looking at my map, looking at the blimp, trying to try and get that location. And I tend to walk pretty far up in the uh, the column. Um, so I have just the mine hound, our you know, mine detector in the front. I have a security guy right behind him, and then myself, and then my RTO, and then everybody else is behind me. So we're walking. I realize the building's off to the left, but also realize we've crossed over the stream, and we're on the, I don't say the wrong side, but we're not where the main trail is now. We're kind of in an off, off this spot. So I stopped the platoon, I'm looking around, I'm trying to figure out where to go, and I'm like, okay, I think we need to go here and cross the stream. Um, as we're going, you know, this day, obviously, I don't know exactly how it happened, but either I took a step off the trail or we missed a section with the mine hound. But I just remember basically a loud noise flying. Th I flew through the air to my left. I hit a tree and landed, on, landed face down. And my ears were ringing, and I realized, okay, something has happened. And it's dusty, it's dirty. I'm looking down and I'm, I, I'm trying to like get my bearings. I sit up, I kind of, I'm looking around from my, I'm face down on my chest. Um, but my gear is so big, I can kind of move my head. And I see a guy who's got blown into the, uh, into the creek. And I'm looking at him, I start yelling at him. And I realize he can't hear me. And because it's, he probably can't hear anything and I can't really hear anything. And I also realize I can't move anything in my body. I'm basically kind of paralyzed. Like, no, I don't have any sensation. Uh, so I, I freak out for a minute there, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, there must be a grenade that went off. Someone threw a grenade at us, and it blew up or something. Um, and then I slowly start to realize, like, okay, I'm starting to gain sensation, like from my neck down. I'm starting to, like, okay, my shoulders work. Okay, now my arms are moving again. My body just must have been in shock. So I was going down. Okay, I can feel my butt. All right, all right, I'm good now. So then I kind of throw myself over and roll onto my back. And when I roll onto my back, I look down, and basically my right my right leg from the calf down is gone like the foot's totally gone the 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 calf is like splayed open like you would see in band of brothers when they were spiking the uh, the artillery shells like that's boom it's just blown wide open um and my my index finger which i had outside my trigger well was is severed and is hanging by one piece of skin and it's completely gone and i have blood all over my forearm and and hand uh and i immediately real okay, stepped on an id <laughs> that's the only thing that does this kind of damage um and I don't realize it at the time, but I actually have far other, far worse injuries as well. But kind of took stock of it and realized I'm not going anywhere. So I'm just going to kind of sit here for a minute and wait for folks to, to kind of come up and get to me because I, I was in no, I couldn't pull off my tourniquet and I couldn't really do anything at that point. So, About how long before people started moving to you? 
you know, so time's a little odd. It didn't take that long, um, but I was interesting in the sense that I know that the, um, like my company commander was on the patrol with me, so was my platoon sergeant. So they were very specific, like, hey, get out the mine hound. You're going to clear all the way up there. No one runs up to them. There's probably secondary IEDs. So it definitely took a few minutes. I also had, so I had an EUD officer and an EUD NCO who were on the patrol with me. So they also came up with the, the medic. And it was kind of interesting though. I lucked out in the sense that I had no pain. I still felt nothing. So that was like one benefit. So like when my medic got up to me, you know, I was his first casualty ever. Um, and so he was like, obviously really anxious. He's like, it's okay, sir. I got you. It's all going to be okay. And I'm like, Hey, right. How you doing? Calm down. How you doing? Like, look at me. We're okay. I just need you to put a tourniquet on the right leg, you know, just like trying to get him to like realize like, Hey, just do your, do what you're supposed to do. Like, we don't have to freak out about it. Like I was also a little felt better because as frankly, I was a 30 minute drive from, from Kandahar, which meant by aircraft, it's probably five minutes. So the idea that I could make it in the golden hour was relatively high as long as we do what we're supposed to do. Um, so I also had that in the back of my mind. It was who was in the Creek bed. The security NCO, the, one of my team leaders who was acting security and the, uh, the mine hound both got blown from the blast forward. Uh, he ended up having shrapnel across his arm and he did get medevaced with me. And then my R2 behind me, he also got shrapnel and he actually had a piece of shrapnel scrape his cornea. So he lost vision in his eye for a bit. It did come back after a period of time after it healed. Um, so both of them were like minorly wounded in the sense that they got medevac to the hospital with me, but they both never left country and were back with the unit in under a week. So, so Doc Wright, your medic, puts the tourniquet on you. Right. So he puts the tourniquet on, we start working on it, and he puts the tourniquet on my forearm, he puts the tourniquet on my right arm, puts the tourniquet on my left, arm, my left leg. I've got tourniquets everywhere. And, you know, uh, the, the EOD officer comes up, and unfortunately, I'm not his first rodeo. Like being an, being an EOD officer, I'm probably the fifth person he's seen get blown up. Um, and he he tells me this story later. Though. He kind of comes up to me. You know, he was like, he saw the tourniquet. And as he put the tourniquet on, though, my limb started to like relax a little bit. So it actually got looser. And so he kind of came in and was like, hey, hey, right. We're going to we're gonna put two tourniquets on this leg. And you're going to retighten that tourniquet. And starts kind of giving him guidance because he has some more things. And, and he tells me later, he's like, he goes, you were sitting there and like you could see the bones and the tendons in your hand and you were just like flexing it back and forth, just kind of looking at it being like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and, and then he's like, I told you, like, could you stop moving your hand, please? Because you're kind of freaking me out. It's like, um, which is, you know, kind of amusing later. But um, but I was still there and like my platoon sergeant came up to me. He was part of the team. My, my CO took over and said, I'm going to clear the, uh, I'm going to call in the nine line and I'm going to clear the LZ and you're going to take over the team that's securing me and the other casualties and then bringing us to the LZ. How far away was the LZ? It was a couple hundred meters. And all we had, right, was we had that like, I don't know what I'm trying to, but it's basically, you know, the, the lightest weight skid you could. It was just a big blanket, basically a big nylon thing. And uh, when I was sitting there and they rolled that thing out and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. We <laughs> I wanted to carry the big, the big litter. Uh, so we have this litter and they got ready to pick me up and they were like, Hey, we're going to carry you like this two, 300 yards across this Creek. And I'm thinking about the terrain and you're just thinking about all the training missions where you drop the guy, you know, all the time. And so I stopped and said, Whoa, 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 who's carrying me? You? And I, was, I pointed to a I'm like, you're not strong enough. I'm like, grab him on security, switch positions with him. He's bigger. I want him to carry me and you get on security. Like who here has strength? Like, cause we're not going to drop me on the walk back to the LZ. So we, they got me back in one piece. Um, and for, thank, so another side note, it's kind of funny. For some reason there was like a sandstorm 
And so even though we had um, like standard U.S. Army medevac birds at Fab Passab, they wouldn't fly. They said, we can't fly in this. So the PJs came out of Kandahar and came to pick me up. And my CEO told me, he was like, yeah, I got to the LZ and we were getting ready to clear it. And they just came and and just landed in the middle of the LZ. We never cleared it. And he came, the PJs came running out to you. And he's like, I was yelling at them because he had previously had plenty of people injured, both as a Ranger platoon leader and as a 10th Mountain platoon leader. And he was just like, he's like, we haven't cleared anything. You can't do that. And he's like, we don't have time, sir. We got to get him out of here. And so. So, I mean, for me, it lucked out. Thank God no one was injured from their, their end. But um, I got medevaced by the PJs. And so once you get to Kandahar, what happens? Uh, so once we get to Kandahar, so, again, I'm going to have to tell some embarrassing stories here. But I was conscious the whole time we get to the bird, right? And I get on the bird. I remember I leaned over to one of the medics and tapped him, and he leaned down. And I'm like, I'm thirsty. <laughs> and he just looked at me like I was crazy and completely ignored my request for water. At some point, I pass out. And I don't, I don't remember anything else. Although uh, one of the other company commanders who was acting as our liaison officer at CAF tells me that when they got there, they shook me awake because they're worried about like a, a TBI. And uh, when they shook me awake, I was incredibly, I, I basically was like, I went to like survival mode. I was like, I was very much worried about if everything on my body was still where it was supposed to be in certain areas is how I would say it. And I was assured by a nice nurse that everything was great. And I was in a wonderful state. And so at that point, they then got me ready for surgery and um, put me into a drug-induced kind of coma. I don't know, basically knocked me out. And I was out for the next three days until I got to Germany. What happened on the rest of the patrol? Did you find that out? Yeah. So, um, I mean, when they were getting ready to move me out, I, I kind of you know talked to Platoon Start and I pointed out. I said, hey, that house right there, that's our house. Like, make sure you guys come back and, and do this piece. You know, let everybody know I'm fine. Like, don't stop. Don't stop the patrol. After the patrol, they everyone was pretty exhausted by everything that happened. I was the first like significant casualty of the platoon or of the company. Commander kind of got together with the team, and the EOD officer was like, "Hey, sir, you know it would be really good if we went back and tried to find the components of the IED so we can fingerprint it and do analysis." And so they ended up doing another probably four hours where they went back, had to mine hound all the way up, found the crater, did post blast analysis, and then cleared the building, uh, and then came back to the base did they figure out who did it uh from what i understand they they later did they they had an idea of who it was and they think that they got him but it was not one of those just not like a court of law kind of thing where we're 100 sure who it was your company commander was on that patrol normally when you know when the pl gets hit the platoon sergeant steps up but there's a captain there how did that interaction wind up playing out so it ended up for my sake i was incredibly satisfied with it because my company commander was a very like very sharp very sharp guy. Um, you know, uh, he'd been in the Rangers. He had, he was very, very detail oriented prior to the deployment. He was very, very focused on not losing anybody. He had made, made all these like laminated kind of like, um, cards that we carried that were like, okay, this is like your nine line. This is your TTPs. He wanted everyone to be as focused and as ready for the deployment as possible. Uh, so I felt really confident having him on the patrol. It kind of, I guess, ties in a bit to the idea of kind of cross-training your people. One of the problems you run into is that when you're training, you always train with people in the roles that they're designed for. And if anything, you're like, okay, well, the squad that gets hurt, then the team leader will do this job. But as you, I've kind of alluded to a bit, things change so rapidly. And when you're putting together a patrol, you'll have someone with dysentery. You'll have somebody who's injured. You'll have somebody who, you know, has a medical issue and, and they're being held off a patrol. And all of a sudden, your entire patrol is 
nobody you expected it to be and everyone's in a new role. So making sure that everyone's able to do these different roles is super important. Uh, in this situation, whereas usually the platoon sergeant would take over that, that position, um, since the company commander was a very kind of action-oriented guy and he was at the very, very rear of the formation with his RTO, it made the most sense for him to just kind of take that over. Um, and since one of my senior team leaders was the guy in front of me pulling security who got injured, we quickly ran into a situation where we only had a platoon sergeant, a squad leader, and then like the CO really were the three leadership roles on the platoon that weren't injured. Um, since my Archie was also injured, and so my radio was also damaged. So he had the radio, and so he called it in and then put the platoon sergeant in charge of the. After you come out of your coma at CAF, you're in Germany. What was the rest of your, your kind of, what, what's the narrative arc after that? Uh, the narrative arc. So let's see. So I woke up in, in, uh, in Germany and in Launchable and realized they had taken way more of my leg than I thought they were going to. Um, everything's just a big ball of, you know, bandages. And so you have no idea how bad it is underneath. So I didn't realize at all the extent of my injuries. I've, I realized later how, how bad I had been injured. Um, in the sense that my entire left calf was shredded and uh, was shrapnel and had to be cut out. Like I lost my entire pinky finger to the wrist. I lost my index finger. I lost a section of my forearm. I lost a section of my butt. I had a whole, <laughs> whole host of things, but I had pretty good healthcare there. You know, they motivated me about another five days later uh, um, on a flight to Brook Army Medical Center down in San Antonio, where I had really, really great healthcare there. Um, got to know my medical team super well. Went through probably 15 surgeries over the next couple of months. Got discharged from the hospital at the, I want to say, November of 2012. So about four months in the hospital. This happened in August of 2012. Uh, and then from that time, went through rehab at, at the CFI, the Center for the Intrepid, um, for a handful of months. And then was trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my kind of Army career and ended up working as the adjutant at Procurement Medical Center. So um, once I finished rehab in about a year or so, was kind of was looking for a job, and that was a, a pretty simple one to get. So. How much longer did you wind up staying in the Army? So I actually served just past my five-year mark. Um, I had gotten, I went through the med board process and was found unfit for duty, but it applied for co-ad. But at that time, you could apply for a waiver to stay in active duty if you wanted to. Um, I was very fortunate in that I think one benefit of me uh, being kind of someone who was not afraid to ask for help is that whenever someone came to my room and was like, hey, can you know, do you need anything from me, like my division commander, I'd be like, well, yes, sir. You want to write me a letter of recommendation? Um, and was able to get the, the LORs I needed to stay in. So I got approved to stay on active duty and stayed on for another two years, like two and a half years, until like, I've been in service five years and like five months or something like that. Um, and got promoted to captain and then ended up getting out uh, at a certain point, kind of went through the Ended up taking the medical retirement, though, because it was just getting more difficult at a certain point and went to business school. So. Since leaving the Army, what have you done? So since leaving the Army, um, I, when I got out of the Army, I, I left and went to Harvard Business School up in Boston. Um, that was a great experience. Several classmates there, um, good military network there. Uh, after finishing that, I did a stint at J.P. Morgan, worked in some investment banking in the healthcare group. So I kind of stayed with healthcare. I was really impressed with the healthcare I got and thought I could make an impact there. So got a little jaded by someone just working on finance and really thought, you know, this is interesting, but I, I'm a leader. I like to manage and work with teams. And so I took a role at DeVita, which is a kidney company. They did work on dialysis um, and they, they love veterans there. So took over as a regional operations director managing clinics. Uh, for dialysis patients, 12 clinics, like uh, 500 some patients and about 100 teammates. So like a, basically a civilian version of company command is how I would describe it. Uh, and then from there, I did a little work with uh, Palantir, working with their USG and with the U.S. Army actually on their um, intelligence prep of the battlefield product. 
Uh, and then most recently, I have been working as a kind of a small business entrepreneur looking to buy a small business to run and operate in Texas. I want to go back to your time in San Antonio. You know, when you were in the hospital, did you wind up seeing your platoon? Did you hear from them? You know, kind of what support did you get from yeah. Fort Lewis? Well, so I'd say I got so So one of the platoon leaders that I had met when I showed up, and it's since I got promoted to the captain, he became the rear D commander. He was a really good guy. He had gotten blown up in the previous deployment and had like shattered his femur or something to that degree. So he was on a medical profile. Uh, as a rear D commander, he was in touch with my family. He helped organize them getting down there, and he was in touch with me, which was uh, super helpful. Um, and with the platoon specifically, when they got back, I was able to get, uh, I don't want to call it, I don't want to leave. I got TDY, and I went up, and I was able to go back to the redeployment ceremony and, you know, receive my post-deployment awards and go to the the ball. Um, got, you know, my little kind of PL plaque and talk to the, the folks again, which was, was really great. And it was also interesting because my, you know, the platoon leader who took over my platoon uh, from me after my injury, you know, I got to chat with him and kind of hear his perspective and, you know, it was nice. He was like, yeah, I came in, you know, and the platoon operated really well. And, you know, things went, went, went well for me. And, and I was, you know, although he did fire my RTO. But I was glad to hear that at least the, the platoon had done well enough that the incoming leader didn't have any issues. So, Was it an emotional reunion for you or was it just another kind of day in the Army? Uh, I think it, it, was a, it was a little emotional. I mean, I'm glad that nobody else, nobody else on the platoon was injured during the time in Afghanistan. So everyone that I deployed with kind of came back. So that was great to great to see. I also think it was helpful, though, for them to see me because I think some people's last vision of me was as me like potentially going to die. And so realizing that, you know, hey, like I went back, I've recovered, I'm here and, you know, I'm not angry, I'm not upset about anything. Like we're working through this, I think was like kind of a positive kind of ending to everything. So. Well, I guess on that ending, Richie, I want to thank you for your time here today. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.